Welcome back to I Love That Record. It's been a minute since I recorded an episode of this podcast. Okay, more than a minute. It's been a long time. But in celebration of this album's 25th anniversary, I decided that it was long overdue to talk about it. What album am I talking about today? It is Less Than Jake's 1998 masterpiece, Hello Rock View. Produced by Howard Benson, mixed by Chris Lord Algie, mastered by Bob Ludwig. Lots of industry heavy hitters worked on this thing for uh, one of my favorite bands of all time, and this is definitely my favorite album from them. Definitely worth talking about. Now, I could have just sat by myself and talked to the air for hours about this record. I still listen to it all the time. I have lots of thoughts. That would be pretty boring. So instead, I have something very special today. I have an interview with Less Than Jake's lead singer, guitar player, and songwriter, Chris DeMakes. So excited that he joined me to discuss the album and, again, celebration of its 25th anniversary. Buckle up. Chris, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, it's an incredible honor, honestly, because uh, this album, Hello Rock View, is one of my favorite albums of all time. Rock I was on, thinking man. back, I was listening to one of your episodes with either Carvel, Carl Alvarez or I think it was Bill Stevenson of The Descendants when you said something that resonated with me about the first album you hear from a band really being the one that you connect with. And Hello Rock View was that for me. I will never forget ninth grade keyboarding class. Someone sitting next to me had the album on CD. We could listen to CDs on our disc mans while we were typing in keyboarding class. She said, hey, you should check this out. And I was into ska at the time. I hadn't heard of Less Than Jake. Blew my mind. So, so excited to have you here to talk about Hell Rock View. To, to quick uh, kick things off, looking back, uh, 1998, the band has transitioned from Losing Streak, the first record on Capitol, to Hello Rock View. And you know, it blows my mind when I compare the two because the songwriting took such a leap from Losing Streak to Rockview. And I was wondering if you could take me back to what you and the band were thinking at the time and how you felt about the material and kind of how you were approaching things. And did you realize what you had going into making Rockview? Oh, God, no. I mean, we were, I was 23 when I wrote the record, I think 2024 20, when we recorded it. So, uh, you know, a lot of the songs were piecemealed together in the studio. You know, we probably had maybe maybe a third or a good half of the record you know written like complete songs i know scott farkas was done because we had written that that was uh we had an earlier version of that on a seven inch record and we also had an earlier version of cheese they may have been on the same seven inch uh i can't can't recall exactly but uh so those songs were done and there was a couple other ones i remember uh we came in with a pretty good shell of liberty city the first track on the album that was a, a initially called Bulletproof. And we were actually playing that because it was before the days of YouTube. You could go out and play songs live. We were playing sure. the song without lyrics. I was just making up lyrics. That's what we would do then. Oh, we seriously? Would just, wow. Yeah, we were so excited to play the song um, and no videos of that exist, which is which is probably good. But, uh, you know, a lot of the melodies were there. But the, the reason you hear what you hear, that giant leap, you know, because there was a leap between Pezcor and Losing Streak, but that was more, you know, we, we had more time to get the takes right kind of kind of thing. But, you know, the the growth I think you're hearing is due to Howard Benson. He was our, our you know, first real producer that was a composer. So he was a pianist and, you know, he was he was hearing orchestrations and hearing different things that just we were too young. We were we were just these young ragtag punk rockers. And so um we were one of the first records that was done on Pro Tools as well. Um, we were definitely one of the first records that had auto-tune on, on anything, vocals, 
uh, horns. And it was like the first programs. This stuff was on floppy disk. It took forever. When Howard went to have the record mixed with Chris Lord Algae, they hadn't really known each other yet. They ended up, you know, famously working together for years on huge hit records. But at the time, Chris was like, what are you wheeling in here? He was wheeling in these computers with these. It was primitive to this big time Hollywood mixer. It was primitive to him. And he's like, what is this? It's like Pro Tools files. This this is never going to take off. And, you know, people kind of crapped on the idea then just because the technology hadn't caught up yet. But once it did, of course, everyone embraced it. But, um, you know, what that growth you're hearing is due to Howard. He really pushed us vocally and he was able to chop up parts and move them around and say, hey, what do you think of this? It was like, whoa, you know, like it <laughs> wow. was really it was really amazing to us. Uh, the vocal harmonies, he created a lot of those. Like we would sing them, but like he go, okay, sing it again. We'd sing something. And he was there all night like moving vocal parts and harmonies around so when we were hearing mixes back from the record it was kind of like that was the point where i realized i gotta step up my game i think roger did too in the vocal department and we really uh we really got good i think over that rock view tour you know we could always kind of sing together but now we were really paying attention to to pitch and timing and and trying to make it sound uh sound like the record well, that's amazing. I mean, what I'm hearing you say there is without Howard Benson, you would not have been able to bring all these things together. And then you obviously had to deliver and execute in the studio and then on tour afterwards. But he pushed you to think more about arrangements and harmonies and layers and things like that. Oh, yeah, that, that record without him, it wouldn't have been what it was for sure. I'll, I'll yeah. I mean, we wrote the record, you know, we, we came yeah. up with the concepts and whatnot, but the magic happened when we were in the studio, that, that other ingredient, having somebody, somebody who had been doing this for a long time. And, and again, it was, it was the way he thought about, he, he, you know, uh, he was a composer. So we had a horn section, you know, and he was hearing organ pads and hearing different things that we, we never would have, would have been able to uh, come up with at that age. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned the organ pads too, because that was something as I've been listening and listening to the album to prepare for this. I, one thing that stuck out to me was Nervous in the Alley, which sort of starts out sounding like Dope Man a little bit, but it goes to places that Dope Man doesn't at all in terms of switches between regular time and double time. There are B3 organ pads throughout. They're just these fun little cool parts throughout that song. And that's that's true throughout the whole record that you guys did not do previously. Um, and it's amazing then what a producer can have in terms of an impact on the band. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and uh, that is kind of that was a blueprint kind of for my whole career. I was able to, from that, then learn other things in the next session I went to that I had learned. Cause I, I learned more in the hello rock view session than I had in any previous, you know, five or six years I had been recording up to that point. Sure. Know? So I, I, it was uh very beneficial for, for going forward. Yeah. It's kind of wild to think back on the arc of a band. You know, you did two major label records at the time in a row, right? Two on Capitol. And you had access to heavy hitters on this, on this album, right? You mentioned Chris Lord Algae. I've been getting back into mixing and home recording a little bit and watching some of his YouTube videos. And I looked at the credits again on this, like, holy crap. Yeah. He did, he'd mixed the record. Right. And like, he's done all sorts of big stuff. Bob Ludwig was the mastering engineer on it. Like, yeah. Do you feel we like work with, we work with Chris's brother, Tom too. I've been down to South beach in his studio and sure. But, uh, but yeah, we came out to, to actually mix rock view. Uh, you know, we weren't in there with Chris. I mean, we'd walk in and he'd pump up a mix, but we weren't like hawking over his shoulder, but that's when, uh, when we got to meet him. I was kind of wondering about the mixing process too, because that in of itself is a creative 
part of the record making, right? Um, how involved was the band in the mix or was it mostly just hearing what the master was doing and like, yep, that sounds good. Go with it. Well, you know, looking back, I mean, hindsight's always twenty twenty. There's nothing I would change about the record. Um, because it was a, it was a time capsule, a moment yeah. in time that, that we captured. Certainly the horns and the vocals and are just squashed and compressed yeah. and the, the horns almost sound like synthesizers at points. And that's due to the auto tune. Okay. And it's due to just, uh, not really understanding what was going on. And that's no, that's no disrespect to Howard. The technology was just too new. Yeah. And, uh, something got lost in translation. I don't think the guitars sound is, is full and as good on it as when we, you know, from what I remember in the studio, I could be wrong. It's going back 25 years, but yeah, we got better tones. I think some stuff just got lost in translations. You got to remember things in the computer had to get transferred back. Um, I believe the two inch tape, uh, for Chris to mix at that point. So, um, there was a lot, a lot going on with that, but no, I wouldn't change anything with it. Um, but there, there's definitely a sound there. There's definitely that, that something that, uh, that attracts people. I've, I've rarely had people talk about the production or not like it. They only talk about the songs and that's the beauty of it. To me, some of my favorite records don't sound great. Uh, Operation Ivy's energy, let's say it's not the, yeah. the best recording in the world, but, uh, certainly the songs hit you, hit you really hard and, and it's, it's perfect. You, you wouldn't want it any different. Well, and I actually, I have thoughts on those two topics you raised, the guitar tones and the horns, and I want to dig in a little bit. Now, I, I hear, in listening again, the squashness for sure. It's very compressed. Uh, I'll start with the guitars. But one thing I really love about the this particular record that is not as much present on other records from Less Than Jake, but also other Scott Punk records, is that the clean tones for the guitars, in quotes, I'm saying, are actually pretty dirty. So like the verse parts for Last Night of Liberty City or um, All My Best Friends Are Metalheads have a little bit of dirt on them. There's a little bit of crunch there, which I think is a super cool sound for a quote, clean ska, you know, upstroke guitar. Do you remember thinking about that at all? Or was that a, a Howard choice yeah. or like where that came in? No, that was kind of wanting to have congruency between the parts and just kind of, you know, at, at the time, you know, and, and since then, I think it, we kind of take it song by song basis, you know, like this song should have a little dirtier, this song should yep. be a little chirpier and clean. But I think then it was, we were still very much in the mindset as a band, maybe Howard wasn't. And I remember Howard saying that too, like, I don't care how you play a live, we're making a record. And he had a point. And I, I understand the two different yeah. things now, but the mindset was always the live show. That's always been our, our thing, our bread and butter. So it's like, we're always thinking live, how am I going to pull this off? It's like, yeah, I want, I want it to be a little dirtier in the verses. So you know, I remember doing the uh, clean uh, guitar part for uh, Nervous in the Alley in the verses. And it's it's not really Scott. It's more of like a strumming thing. Yeah. And, uh, I remember just saying as we went to, well, I say tape. We went to Pro Tools. I was like, I want to, um, or did we record the tape? No, we didn't record the tape. We recorded straight to Pro Tools. Um, but the uh, I remember saying to Howard, I want to have a little reverb. You know, so we went out to the amp, we put it on. I didn't want it to be in mixing later. And we actually did it right then. You could actually hear some room on that guitar in the verses. So little things like that. But, you know, for the most part, it was, you know, it, it's so long ago. The I remember a little, little burst like that, but it went by really fast. You know, that was the other thing is we were, we were, we'd been a band for a while. We've been playing a lot at that point. And 
you know, there wasn't too much in terms of guitar technicality that was going on at this point. It was upstrokes that I could play really well and, and power chords. There wasn't and too don't many. forget the finger tapping. Was that, yeah, I assume you recorded that on, uh, help save the youth of America from exploding, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. So. That was, uh, that was doubled. I remember doubling that, um, getting one good one and then and getting another one to try to line up with it, but, but tucking it back. Um, that was double. That was fun. But uh, at the beginning of Help Save, um, for Christmas of 1985, my mom and dad got me this little cassette player. It was about this big and had, I don't know, maybe like pancake-sized speakers. And uh, I brought that into the studio and I said, I want to do the intro on this. And I I just want it to sound like crap. And then the band's going to kick it. It'll sound huge. And at the time, like if I were to suggest that now, I'd probably have three guys going, why do you want to do that? But back then, it's kind of like anything went right. Like they're like, yeah. okay, Chris is on some weird trip. Let him go do his thing. And that was one take. I hit the, the record on the boombox on a cassette. Sit down, remind me how. And gave the cassette to the engineer and they printed it. And that's what you hear. Seriously. I, yeah. I totally would have thought that was just a studio, like frequency tweak kind of no. thing to, to get that sound. That's amazing. That's on a, that's on a boom box. Me with an acoustic guitar and a boom box in the main studio at mirror image in Gainesville. Wow. Oh, that's super cool. Uh, and, and speaking of guitars too, I did want to ask one of the more distinctive things about you as a band. And I guess you as a guitar player is you played tellies for a long time. Um, and then I, I remember you went through a phase with Les Pauls and, and then I think are back more on tellies now. Where did that come from? What, what got you into playing telecasters and how do you think that affected the sound of the band and maybe on this record in particular? Um, well, I'm trying to think what I used on this record. I remember using definitely a, a, a Gibson. It's probably one of the probably one of the tellies at that point. Um, really, the guitars for me, especially in the early days, it was whoever was going to give me a deal on the guitar. So if I was going to get an artist deal, that's why I started playing tellies. Uh, at some point, I got a deal through Ernie Ball. They were giving me guitars for a while. So um, studio is always different, though. Even to this day, you know, I'll, I'll sometimes play an SG in a studio or something that I would that I would never play live. You know, you just to, to add layers and, and, and whatnot. Sure, cool. Um, and so back to then the horns, which you mentioned earlier. So I, I know I, I should mention for anyone listening, did a great episode on, I think it was Boring Town in particular, but with Howard Benson. I love that episode of your podcast. I love the technical detail. It was so cool. But you talked about the horns in that one. And I think you said you hated the horn sound. Now, I love it. And it's probably because it was the first one I heard. But what I love about it is it's so unique and it, it does sound synthy. But I feel like what makes it work for me is that you had Darren still in the band playing the baritone sax. And it's always that, like, there's that low end that goes to the horn parts that complements the trombone so well. So I, I, I mean, I don't know, I guess I don't even have a question other than to say, I think it's such a cool, unique sound that you don't hear in any other ska punk record, really. Well, you're not going to hear it because we don't know how we got the sound. It, it, <laughs> it was somewhere between squashing it through primitive pro tools uh, uh, means with the auto tune, uh, getting it to the mixer, losing the translation there. There was a lot of things. I, I do think that the horns cut because of that high end synthy squash. They definitely, and then that lower horn kind of sits back here. So there is separation. It's hard to cut horns through big distorted guitars because they're kind of right at the same frequency. Sure. You know, so, um, yeah, it, I mentioned earlier, it does have, uh, an authenticity to this record. It doesn't sound like anything else for sure. And all these components that we've been talking about all add up to that reason. I wouldn't change a thing. You know, we recorded um, 
a couple of re-records uh, this this year. Uh, we did Metalheads. We call it Metalheads 23 and Boring Town 23. I don't know if you heard those or not. I think I have them on my vinyl downstairs. Okay. I don't know yeah, if I yeah. pulled open the last, uh, so, I think it's on the last disc. Yeah. Right. And we just, we literally did it for fun. And I know, especially doing my Sarni podcast, and I've said it before, you you can't replic- replicate something. I, I don't know if I've ever heard a re-recording of a hit that I thought was better than than the original. I don't care how bad the original sounded. If, if it was a hit and there was a charm there, we're talking about. So uh, we did these songs. We had some people, why would you re-record them? They sounded better before. It's like, that's not the point. We were right. just, yeah. this is the band today. We, we, we tracked the songs. It, it took us all of a day to do it. We had a, we had some laughs over. We actually went. I'm listening to the original versions, uh, going, did I? Because you know you start to morph and change over the years. You know we don't sit around listening to our records. So uh, you go back and go, man, I sing this a lot different now. So some of that stuff I, I wanted to replicate and, and be like, yeah, I should sing it like that. But other stuff I changed a note or two there and and, and moved it around, kind of how we do now, because I think it's a little bit better. But. Um, yeah, you you know you you can't. Uh, I can't recreate that time period. I can't be twenty four again. Sometimes I wish I could, but you know. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Uh, do you remember how you and the band felt about the as things were unfolding, sort of? Because I'm hearing you say it really came together in the studio. So did you know what you had, and did you feel that? Um, you know, by the end of the session or as the session was going on, or was it sort of like, yeah, we're just making a record. We're going to go back out on the road and whatever. Does that make sense? Like it, it just, yeah, it, you, get I, sense you know, of that. Um, we were on the road, I mean, nine months out of the year. I mean, you know, I, I would come home. I remember I had a girlfriend at the time and she said, you, you, you never unpack your toiletry bag. I'm like, yeah, I know. It just sits on the bathroom counter. Cause I'm just going to grab it and put it in my suitcase and, and leave again. And that was, you know, that's, kind of how we were rolling then. So no, you, we didn't know what we had. I mean, we we were just, we were still thrilled to go out and explore. There was so many new things that were happening. We went to Japan on the Hello Rockview tour for the first time, um, you know, and uh, there was so many firsts happening. Everything was was, was all new. And, and we just made the next record at that point. You know, we got the mixes back. I got a, a CD of the full record, and this would have been late July, early August, because August, early August of 98, I took my dad to Vegas for his 50th birthday. And on the way to the airport, uh, which was about an hour away, I put the, uh, I was driving the band van and I put the CD in. And my dad was a fan. My dad's, my dad uh, was a musician and, uh, he was really liking what the band was doing, but I played this for him. And he was the first person I played it for. And he was just like, he was slack jawed. He couldn't believe what the band sounded like. And it was right then that I went, well, maybe we have something here. Cause my dad never BS me. Like if he thought it was crap, I'd, you know, he'd, he would, he would tell me. So uh, that was kind of like a little bit of an indicator. And then we got these advanced uh, CDs that were actually printed by Capitol. They would hand them to record stores and, and radio stations and whatnot. And we each got like a stack of 25 for family and friends. And I remember giving them to, to friends and, and, and family and starting to get phone calls of, dude, this is next level, you know? And so then it, it goes out to the fans and uh, 
it was pretty immediate. You know, you got to think of what was happening, uh, the third wave or whatever they were calling it, of Scott yeah. Punk. This was right in the wheelhouse, man. You had the boss tones hitting Goldfinger, Real Big Fish. Um, everyone was doing business. And uh, when we put this record out, I remember going out and playing Metalheads, and it might have been the first or second show of the tour, and people were already singing every word. Okay, that's how hot Ska was then. You know, we put a record out now, it takes five years before people want to hear the songs from that album. That's just the way that, that life rolls. But uh, then it was, it, because of what was going on, it was very immediate. Got it. Okay, so you knew, I guess. it's It, it passed the dad test, it sounds like, like exceeded dramatically. Um yeah, it's it's so interesting because I, I think for such a long time, Losing Streak was sort of the canonical, like classic Less Than Jake album. And I almost wonder if over time this one has taken over a little bit. And, you know, I think people appreciated that was more of the apotheosis of the old Less Than Jake sound. But this sounds, it was really that transition with the songwriting and you start putting all the pieces together. I think. Yeah, there, there's two records, really. Well, three. It's it's Rockview and, 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 and Borders and Boundaries in England for us. Borders is a huge record there. Gainesville Rock City was a hit. Um, in England. So that, that's a, that's a big album for us. Um, but Anthem's the other record that, uh, that and Hello Rock View are the, are the two big ones when we play those songs. And, um, yeah, I would say overall Rock is probably our, our most well-known. It was, it was, it was that time period. You know, I talk about this a lot on my podcast, those memories, you know, uh, when we go out and, you know, this past year, we've been doing the Hello Rock View tour, we're playing the album in its entirety. And, Every night people come up and man, I saw you at college my first time. And like you, yeah. you know, I was, in, I was in ninth grade and I was in typing class and someone handed me the CD and, you know, every night you're hearing these memories, you can't, that's the, the most powerful thing is the heart and soul and spirit of someone's memory attached to something that you created. You know, that 23, takes- like, how does that feel? Like, cause you didn't, as you said, you didn't know what you were making at the time. Really? You uh-huh. felt good about it afterwards. How does that feel to hear that all these years later? You know, it, it, it feels great. It's weird because, um, you know, it, you're appreciative from it, but it doesn't go to your head like, Oh yeah, man, I created this thing. It was just something I did. I, you know, um, we could as easily not be talking about it right now. You know, I could be doing whatever in my life. Uh, and for some reason we are. And I think that's testament to, you know, we wrote some good songs, but, but, you know, hats off to the lyrics, you know, Vinny, yeah. he, he was a, an amazing storyteller and these lyrics resonated and they were, they were lyrics from his life. A lot of them were his pain and I was able to be the vessel to get sure. that out and and to sing that for him. Um, so, you know, the, the lyrics, the melodies hit people, you know, the way Roger and I sang oh, yeah. together. Absolutely. Um, how, how we use the horns as other voices, not just horn parts, you know, and, and sometimes the horn parts are the part. Here's the feature of the song. And Danny you know, says is a great example of that, which I know over the years you kind of crapped on as a song you didn't really like. Maybe you were joking from stage, but then I think you even said on your podcast, you play that now. And when the end that uh, the kind of the outro with the horn hits and people are just going crazy, it's like I'm getting chills just thinking about it right now. And it's exactly what you're saying. Yeah. It's that there's an emotional connection there. And I love that you called out the lyrics, by the way, because somewhat unusually, even less than Jake, if people don't know, your drummer, Vinny, for a long time, um, wrote the lyrics and you and Roger sang the songs. And I, I feel like the the lyrics were 
similar in theme to what was on Losing Streak, but the songwriting helped elevate them like together on this record. Like I think the melodies and the, the structures and the arrangements really like all came together, which is basically what you're saying, I think. Um, well, Howard was also really big on writing choruses and we didn't have a chorus for Boring Town. That wasn't there. I think the demo is actually a Boring Town is on the record you have. I think we released that and it's just, it's all over the place. It's it's just a bunch of ideas and there's certain elements of Boring Town that, that's in there. And I was just sitting down one day and I just this simple chord progression, you know, uh, that same old crowd. And I came up with that, that same old crowd that keeps me down. I, I, and then maybe Vinny was like another day in a boring town, you know, up until then I, Roger and I never really, you know, brought anything, anything lyrically idea to the table. It was, it was all Vinny. So, you know, we, we tried to, I hate using the word dumb it down, but it's like, okay, here's the chorus. Let, let's make it a little more something, you know, people can sing along to. And the verses can have these crazy, you know, have all the crazy storytelling, which in that song, the, the, the story is amazing. And people latch onto it. People from all over the world think it's about their town, which <laughs> totally that's, that's the beauty of it. You know, it's they had to have written this about me. Oh, yeah, ab- absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the theme, the thing we keep saying over and over again is just it's amazing how the ingredients come together to make a record what it is, a song, but a record overall. And, you know, without Howard, without Vinny's lyrics, without your and Roger's harmonies, which we haven't talked a lot about, it wouldn't be what it ended up uh, turning out to be. Um, I, one thing I wanted to ask about kind of on a more like music uh, industry nerdy side is, you know, you, you were dropped or left Capitol after this record. Um, but I noticed, uh, you know, it says smart punk records on the vinyl. Did you end up being able to buy back the the rights, the masters to the album? How did that go? And like, basically who owns hello rock view these days? Um, everybody owns hello rock view. That's the, that's the answer. We're, we're all, it's, it's all, our <laughs> it's all that. That's the, uh, What's the show you say? Final answer? Is that the uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? So, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it, it's everybody's entity at this point. Everybody owns the songs. They're, uh, the guy from Spotify owns them. So <laughs> um, I was going to say something. You brought up, uh, oh, I wanted to mention that Borders and Boundaries was actually recorded un- with Capitol Records. Money. I remember that. Yep. Yeah, and then, so, then there was a deal or something happened where they weren't going to release it or you didn't feel good about them releasing it or something like that. Our A&R guy left and this guy came in named Ron Lafitte who, who had managed Megadeth for years and Ron became our A&R guy and he came out of the studio like once and, and there just wasn't much, you know, going on. I remember he picked, look what happened is the single. He's like that, you know, I think that should be our first single. Um, And then the next thing, you know, um, we got dropped basically. Mm. Okay. We didn't want to be there, but we got let go. So, we took our most commercial sounding album at that point and went to fat records yeah. and the, uh, the album was heralded as the greatest thing, you know, especially in Europe. I mean, being on fat, it just was the greatest thing that could have happened to us at that point. You know, we were now punk superstars because we were on, just because we were on fat records with our most commercial records. So because it said fat on it, we didn't get any crap, but if that record would have come out on Capitol. <laughs> so in hindsight, it was probably the, probably the best thing we could have done. 
Yeah. And it, I mean, that's, that's hilarious. You say that. Cause that was also an era, the fat records era when they were just huge and massive and people bought CDs, right? It was just a, a different time for sure. Um, yeah. and I will give you a shout out to say, uh, thank you again for VIP in Minneapolis for playing malt liquor tastes better when you got problems. I've now heard it live. Uh, I can, I can die happy. Um, two last questions for you, kind of a lightning around random thing. Number one is Scott Farkas takes on the chin. Is that a reference to Christmas story? You know, this, tis the season. Yes, okay. it, it, yeah. So it was, it was in the movie it was Scott Farkas, but right. Which is weird. We, you know, we didn't want, I remember at the time we want Vinny wanted to spell it different. Cause he didn't want to get sued. Cause we were on Capitol. I'm like, well, just cause you say Scott, I mean, why, well, how would we get sued from that? Um, but yeah, we would do other things that were, were kind of sketchy. Like I remember when we did the song crazy glue, um, I was like, well, why aren't we spe- spelling it with a C? Because if we do it with a K, that's like, you know, crazy glue that you can sell in the stores. Oh, it'll be fine. So in one instance, it was fine. In another instance, it wasn't. So I don't know. That's, but yeah, that, that, that's definitely a reference to that movie. Got it. Uh, and then you, I actually had a, a question to ask, and I think you sort of addressed it already, but you have no interest in remixing, remastering the album. It is what it is. It's just going to be there out there. You know, Funny you should say that. So there, there was a fire. Universal acquired uh, Capitals Masters. And you familiar with the story? Yes. Every, uh, everything there, burned. Lots everything, and lots well, of stuff. a lot of stuff burned. Yeah. For the last, since COVID, okay, probably 2020, I had management and myself reach out to Universal. I even contacted Howard Benson. We contacted Chris Lord Algae. Uh, I spoke to everybody. Like, how, how can we find these masters? Because we wanted to do a remix of it for fun. For fun, I would have loved to have remixed it today and and see what see what it could sound like. Again, not trying to better the album, just what could we do? How would we do it today if we could? And we didn't know what we had. We don't know if the files were printed with all the tuning on it or not. If that's the case, then then we're screwed. We can't go back. But if we could undo any plugins, any tunings, anything like that, and have the raw tracks to remix, so we looked for them, we couldn't find them. So that's oh, why we decided. No. We decided to do a couple of re-records. We put some live stuff on there. And when we did have demos from the era that we that we attached to it, but uh, yeah, we would have loved to have mixed it. It's not off the cards. Um, you know, last I talked to Howard, he said he has more people he could talk to there. So I don't know, maybe, maybe for the 40th anniversary, if people still care, that'd be so cool. Just (laughs) not to replace. Right. But just to see like, what would you do today? Because you've learned so much. You've made a bunch more records, right? Yeah. Well, again, it, it would never be to, to replace. I just would be curious to see the guitar tones in particular, from what I remember, were they as good as I remember? Or was I just, you know, a 23 year old kid that thought they sounded good uh, at the time? Because you thought they sounded great when you're recording them, but then a little squashed and compressed on the record is what you're saying a little bit. The the whole record, like I said, you know, it, uh, it, it, it it got washed a few times. It got dunked (laughs) in this, uh, this machine and dunked over in this one. So a lot of stuff happened, but at the end of the day, if, if, if we're going to be honest, like we, like we both said, um, you can't, um, recreate lightning in a bottle. Something happened there. Uh, Jay from suicide machines. It's, it's one of his favorite records. He tells me all the time. He, he loves hello Rocky. He never talks about the squashed horns or guitars or the production or the vocals. He, you know, uh, so, and, and I remember that and I, with everything that we do, people come up and they want to hear a song and I might give them crap about it, but you know, yeah. I never, you know, I, I appreciate it for what it's worth because I'm the same way. There's songs that hit me from bands. It's like, I know they're never going to play that B-side they released in Japan on that one seven inch, you know, but that's my favorite song from them. You know? Yeah. 
No, totally. Do you still stay in touch with Darren or Pete from the album? Darren played uh, Barry and then Pete played trombone for a couple records. I do. I talked to Darren not too long ago. His band was playing down at the fest in Gainesville. We were supposed to connect and, and we didn't for whatever reason. Pete, uh, yeah, talked to him fairly regularly uh, through text and whatnot. And we see him every time we're up in Wisconsin, him and his wife and, and son come out. We just saw him So last summer. Yeah, it was last, last summer he came out to see us in Milwaukee. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, again, just part of the ingredients, right, that came together on that record. Um, yep. All right, last question for real. Uh, something that now I've been listening to your podcast since you've been doing it and just love it, by the way. It's an amazing podcast. I love what a music nerd you are and how you get <laughs> these amazing guests to talk about their amazing songs. Can I ask how your stage persona developed? Because your stage persona could not be more different from the person that comes across on the podcast, which is this like really sweet, nerdy, like in- interesting guy. And your stage persona has kind of got that edge. You're the joke oh, yeah. teller, right? Lots of F-bombs and whatever. Like how did that evolve in that difference? Because I never thought about it until I saw it so starkly spelled out now that, you know, we can see, oh, musicians are real people too. Listen to them on their own podcasts. Well, that was that was by design. So when I started it with my, my partner, Chris, I, I told him straight up, I said, I'm never going to say damn or hell or, or shit. I'm not going to cuss on this. No eighth grade dick jokes. If you want to hear me talk like that, go see a show. And how that all started was, you know, the F word for, for performers, especially singers, that's like the easiest thing to come out of your mouth. Hey, fuckers. Okay. So <laughs> that's what you do, right? Well, that becomes a thing. I really tried to lay off that even live. Like, you know, like I'll still still talk some shit. It's nowhere near what it was back in the day. Right. Um, there's stuff back in the day that, that you'd be canceled for now. You just can't, you can't say it from the stage anymore. Um, nor do I want to say it at my age, but, uh, you know, that whole thing is, is what I do with the band. And yeah, you said edgy. I, it definitely comes off as a dick. Sometimes I've had people like, Oh, could you say that? But Hey, it's punk rock at the end of the day. None of us are trying to, in the band, are trying to hurt anybody's feelings. It's all in jest. It's all in good fun. Um, but the podcast, I, I wanted it to be taken, I hate using the word seriously, but I wanted people, if they were going to tune in, to be like, oh, yeah, I don't have to sit through dick jokes to get to the, the what the, what the song means. You know, like, there, the, it has to have substance. And, you know, that is me. That's not me trying to, you know, uh, kiss up to the guest or anything and be, be the super, Hey, you know, that is me. That's how I am. When I'm on stage, I, you know, I, I try not to do that persona. Um, there, you know, my, my wife always says, you're not on stage. If I start to get like that in public or something, <laughs> and she's right. And I, I back off, you know? Got it. Oh, that's great. Well, now you've been on the other side of it, right? You get to be the one to say, I don't really remember. I was 23 years old. I don't know what we did in the studio or whatever, but thank you so much for taking the time. It really means a lot. Yeah. Thanks for uh, being patient. I know we were trying to hook this up for a minute. So thanks. Yeah, not at all. Thank you, Chris. Have a great holiday season and uh, catch you later. Rock on, man. Have a great day. My last name's the All right, this is Eric Jorgensen back uh, with another special guest. It was a super cool conversation with Chris Demakes of Less Than Jake. How could I top it? Well, I'm going to try. 
I brought on another special guest to discuss Hello Rockview and kind of round things out and go through some songs and such. I've brought on my sister, Becca Jorgensen, another LTJ fanatic, to uh, discuss this masterpiece with me. Becca, thanks for joining the show. I'm happy to be here. I'm this is one of my favorite albums of all time, so I can't wait to discuss it. It sounds awesome. So let's just dive right in. I, I shared my origin story with the album going back to keyboarding class in ninth grade with Chris when we chatted about it. But what is your history of a boring town? What is your history <laughs> with Less Than Jake's Hello Rockview? When did you first hear it, if you remember? Hello Rockview was the first Less Than Jake album I ever heard, and it was the one that introduced me to ska music. And I remember hearing it back in middle school, which would have been 2000, 2001. And at that time, I was this awkward girl just trying to figure out life, (laughs) going through puberty. And this album came along. And I remember you would play the album in your basement bedroom. And you had the door. Yep. You had the door closed, but I could hear everything. And it was (laughs) so catchy. I got the album myself. I distinctly remember listening to this album while rollerblading and I would listen to it on my Sony Walkman. Would it have been so a Discman or a Walkman? Did you buy it on oh, cassette or CD? Cause that's an you're important right. So it would have been album. So Discman. Okay. So it's very nostalgic for me and I still regularly listen to it even 20 years later. 25. Uh, 25 now. 20, 25th anniversary. So you did you ask me about it do you think when you heard it or did you just kind of figure out that's what I was playing when you overheard I think I asked you about it and that was around the time too that I started listening to Real Big Fish so I think I just started kind of discovering your music interests and then listening to them on my own well that makes sense and I for me I didn't really talk about this with Chris because I didn't want to waste the time we had together but Real Big Fish was my first I think well, no, the Mighty Mighty Boston's was probably my first quote ska band. But then I remember getting into Real Big Fish and, you know, all my friends in high school were band nerds. And I, I would describe Real Big Fish as a band nerd ska band because I think, you know, they had more horns. They had kind of that like nerdy band yes. uh, aesthetic, whereas Less Than Jake was more straight up punk rock. And Chris talked about that a little bit. And and then I, I you know, I, I'd listened to Real Big Fish. I'd bought those CDs, but hadn't yet heard Less Than Jake until uh, Julie LeClaire is the girl who sat next to me in keyboarding class and uh, played that album for me. And I often wonder what would have happened if she wouldn't have. I mean, maybe I would have found it anyway, but um, I, I didn't get into this again with Chris due to time. But I vividly remember the feeling I had when last one out of Liberty city kicked in with that feedback and the, you know, the radio sounding last one out of Liberty city burned to the ground. And then the song just pummels you with energy. And I remember thinking, what is this? And then mm-hmm. the catchy vocals come in, help save the youth of America from exploding is track two. You've got these amazing harmonies. Down. Remind me how this is the same old story of growing up and getting lost. And it was just, it, it was so catchy and energetic and amazing right from the get-go. And is, is that what you remember feeling that as well from uh, your listening experiences on Rollerblades? That was exactly it. It was the perfect rollerblading song. (laughs) High energy, those guitar riffs. And speaking of Real Big Fish, I remember thinking they were a little bit too zany for me. Even back then. Even back then. Sure. I enjoyed their music, but I liked that, 
less than Jake was a little bit more punk. Yeah. So that appealed to me. They definitely were. They're less third wave ska. They were still part of that scene, but definitely not as much into the checkerboard bands and stuff like that. <laughs> exactly. More, yeah, definitely more punk rock. Um, and so did you listen to any other ska music around that time? You said this was your first ska album that you remember listening to. It was really less than Jake and Real Big Fish, I think, were the main two. Those were sort of like my entry-level ska bands. But I always gravitated more towards Less Than Jake. Okay. And then, I mean, I know we're talking about Hello Rockview, but did you find yourself getting into other Less Than Jake albums after that? Like, was it kind of a gateway to their other stuff? Because when you started listening to them, that would have been right around when Borders and Boundaries came out, which was the record following Hello Rockview. Yes. So I got into their other albums and that's around the time that I started going to concerts for the first time too. So I remember going to see them live probably would have been like ninth grade at the quest. I'm assuming at the quest. Yep. So I started discovering their other music and yeah, I I love all their albums, but hello rock views still my favorite. And aside from it being the first album or for, yeah, the first album of theirs that you heard, could you say more about what you still love about it today? Like what makes it still relevant 25 years later after it came out? To me, the whole album just feels cohesive. Yeah. I still will listen to the whole album from start to finish. Me too. And every song is catchy. Uh, it's to me signature less than Jake with the horn sections, the high energy guitar, the lyrics are relatable. Uh, there, I think there's so much depth to this album. Yeah, agreed. Um, and that was something that Chris and I talked about, which you haven't heard that yet, so you'll have to hear it after I put this all together. But he talked about a couple things that were really cool, and some of which he had already talked about in his own podcast episode with Howard Benson, who was the producer of the album. And and Howard Benson went on to work with uh, a lot of really well-known, huge musicians, uh, much bigger than Less Than Jake in terms of commercial success. Um, he worked on P.O.D., Southtown, uh, Hoobastank, mm. <laughs> uh, which is interesting, Three Days Grace, Santana, Kelly Clarkson. Wow. Um, so just a lot of really, really big artists. And what Chris had said was they went into the studio with kind of stubs and pieces of songs, but with few exceptions, mostly not finished. And it was Howard Benson that really pushed them to think of uh, the songs more completely, to develop the parts a little bit more, to add more pre-choruses and post-choruses and bridges and intros and things like that. And and I think that that really comes across. And it sounds like that really taught the band about soundwriting. Because not to crap on their earlier stuff, because I actually, mm-hmm. I love Losing Streak. I love Pezcore. Um, but those songs are so much more simplistic to me right. than what you hear on Rockview. And it sounds like that's, that was your thought and experience too. And Steven, still listening today. Right. And it has a higher production value too, at least yeah. from what I'm hearing. Well, yeah. And it was, uh, and actually I should compare this and look quick on Wikipedia because I, I can do that now that I'm not sitting with a, a member of Less Than Jake <laughs> worried about timing. Um, but the album was mixed by a guy named uh, Chris Lord Algy, who was a, a huge guy in the music industry for uh, being a mix engineer. And he did the mix and it looks like, I'm looking at Losing Streak here. Um I don't actually seeing a mix credit on this, but I don't think it was someone who uh, was so well known. In other words, and uh, they had um, Bob Ludwig was the mastering engineer, and uh, I mentioned that because he, uh, according to Wikipedia, 
has worked on over 3,000 albums. He's retired now, mm. but worked on stuff by Led Zeppelin, Lou Reed, Metallica, Queen, Jimi Hendrix, Brian Ferry, Paul McCartney, Nirvana, Bruce Springsteen. I'd forgot. I think he mastered um, In Utero, if I remember correctly. So wow. a, a team of production people that were, I would say, probably like above less than Jake's place mm-hmm. in the industry at the time. They were getting bigger. They were getting a push from capital, but um, they were really lucky, I think, to have that. And I think Chris said as much. So yeah, everything you're saying makes sense and resonates with me too. They really managed to put together an incredible cohesive album that I also still listen to all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and you and I went to the show in Minneapolis uh, this this last summer. Chris talked about that. They were doing a tour for the 25th anniversary where they, where they played the entire album all the way through, um, which I loved because there's so many songs that you just don't get a chance to hear live because the band never plays, you know, when they're on the tour, even for an album, they don't usually play more than maybe four or five, six songs from it. What did you uh, feel uh, seeing the album in its entirety live? That to me was my dream concert. I was so excited (laughs) when I heard they were going to be playing that album. And it was a few years back that they were doing album specific tours, but they would change the album. Yeah, I remember that. Some of the dates. So Unfortunately, the Hello Rockview dates were not anywhere near where I was living at the time. I was in Pennsylvania. So I ended up going to New York City by myself to see them play Borders and Boundaries all the way through, which was an incredible show. But I remember being disappointed that it wasn't Hello Rockview. Yeah. I mean, it's it's so hard to pick. I, I would feel the same way because I love Borders. But um, yeah, Rockview, of course, and why we're talking about it is uh, by far my favorite as well. Um, anything else like kind of on a general uh, the general note or before we dive into the actual songs themselves that you would say in terms of sort of analysis or thoughts. Um, I did talk with him about the guitar tones and the horns, both of which I really love on the album. He mentioned it's very compressed. Uh, that is a little bit of a stylistic thing, I think, from the mix engineer um, and maybe even the mastering also uh, that, you know, sometimes it's harder to make out some of the guitar tones and stuff. But um, we did talk a little bit about that. I don't know if you have anything like that you want to mention. One thing I wanted to mention is just the lyrics. I I remember oh, yeah. that they were relatable. I f- it felt sort of like a coming of age album, like about yes. growing up and not Chris talked. To, Chris and I and, talked about that, like history of yeah. a warring town. He said people bumped yeah. all the time, and like you wrote that about my town, like about me. <laughs> so I think just relating to what I interpreted as just the struggles of growing up and feeling misunderstood and just trying to discover my identity, and that that came sure. through to me in the album. Oh yeah, that's a good call out. And actually, I now I'm kicking myself again for not bringing this up with Chris. The <laughs> artwork also mm. to me yes. was so cool because it's a comic book with lyrics from the songs. I think if I remember correctly, there's a panel for each song with the lyrics in it or a, like a page for each song, if I remember right. And um, that also fits the whole package, right? Of those lyrics, as you mentioned, written by the drummer at the time, Vinny, about mostly like leaving New Jersey and these people, these characters from from the town, um, feeling kind of like a loser and not fitting and defining himself. Yeah, that that's a really good call out. And they are really great lyrics. Um, but I, I, what I said to Chris was they didn't feel stylistically that different from their previous stuff, especially Losing Streak. But coupled with the much better songwriting and production it like it i think the lyrics got the stage they deserved if that makes Mm -hmm. sense yeah i agree because i don't really find that the other albums stand out as much in terms of lyrics i just don't they're not as memorable to me oh sure um yeah, and do you, well, I guess we could probably dive into the song soon, but I was just going to look up quick to see if I uh, 
anything from the album booklet that jumped out at me, but I, I did buy the special edition vinyl, which oh, is okay. cool. Cause it's, you know, it's blown mm-hmm. up. It's much bigger. Um, and Chris had mentioned, and I, I don't think I'd listened to the very end of it, but they did re-record a couple of songs just for fun. Um, that to see what they sounded like with new, you know, the way that they sing them now and do them now live. Uh, I'll have to check that out again. Um, but yeah, why don't we dive in to song selections? So the way that I've done this previously with episodes of the show is each picking five songs. Um, and if they overlap, we talk about them together. But um, if not, we we go through them, you know, you go first and then I go afterwards. So what are your five picks of tracks that you love from this album the most? I had to preface and say that I love all the songs from this album, but <laughs> <laughs> I was able to easily rank them. Number one, Help Save the Youth of America from Exploding. Amazing song. That's on my <laughs> list also. Number two, History of a Boring Town. Oh, wait, wait, we should talk about... Uh, each one? Yeah, we'll talk about each one. Let's okay. do it that way. Yeah, let's let's get nerdy. Let's dive in. So why Help Save the Youth of America from Exploding? Uh, there's so much to unpack in this song. I think just from the start with the chorus. To me, that is unique. And then it builds up with the guitar riff, um, the harmonies. Um, the song is just so melodic. Yeah, it is. Agreed. Super catchy. No horns in this one, if I remember correctly. I just a I finger tapping, correct. just a, a finger tapping solo from him at the beginning, which is super you're cool. Right. And I feel like this one is actually, I don't know if it's underappreciated, but I don't feel like it's, I don't think they, well, maybe they did play it actually on some of those earlier tours, but you know, compared to all my best friends are metalheads, which on Spotify is 55 million plays mm-hmm. help save the youth of America from exploding is 2.6 million. But oh, wow. I, I just, I think you said the harmonies. Um, I think that middle part, the sit down, remind me how mm-hmm. when it's just Roger and Chris singing sounds so yes. amazing. It sounds so good. Sit down. Remind me how this is the same old story of growing up and getting lost. Um, just a just a really great song. 100% agree. That was definitely on my list. So your number two, you said, was? History of a Boring Town. Yeah, of course. Of course. My, on my <laughs> list also. And again, it's it's melodic. Um, I love the key change later on in the song. Yep. I remember when they look through you. Um, and I just, the message of wanting to break free from a, a small town and White go Bear out Lake, and maybe. exactly where you like, <laughs> go to the big city. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Where do you live now, by the way, Becca? Yeah. White Bear Lake. <laughs> well, I, I came back, you know, I, I explored a little bit. That's right. Returned, but um, this one was uh, a tough call. I almost said it was my number one, but I think number two. Okay, and you are doing them in order, because I didn't really rank mine. I just kind of put five. It doesn't matter. I am, I mean, I am okay. in doing it in order. So one thing that I want to call out about this song that I really, really love is um, I, I feel like it's it's been described actually maybe on Chris's podcast with some of the people that he's interviewed, uh, Layers of the Onion, that the song is not static throughout. You know, it starts mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. just guitar, just vocals. Right. Just talk to this girl. Used to live, yeah, on my street. Whoa. After all these years, you're here. And you remember me. Whoa. 
um, with a little bit of feedback from the previous song uh, transitioning in, which I always love when songs yes. when albums do that, when there's a little bit of overlap between tracks. And it then does the whoa woes, right? And then mm-hmm. it gradually builds up where the whoa woes increase a little bit more and there's more woes in the background. And then eventually they're replaced by horns. Um, but the same kind of background part or similar kind of thing, which is cool. Um, and then I, I believe it goes to probably halftime for the chorus, which uh, um, feels slower, but it's probably the same tempo, um, which is really cool. And then it speeds up again with a bridge, right? And remember when they looked at me or looked past mm-hmm. me, looked through you, or the ones they said would always like. The lyrics you were talking about combined with a slightly different feel of the song. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it really is, I, I think probably one of the best pop songs they've ever written. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say just in terms of be, just being purely accessible and catchy and amazing and all that. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And the horns aren't very prominent in this no. song. Yep. So sure. it's another one of those songs where more of the punk feel. Yep. Um, but yeah, one of my favorites. All right. So that was number two. Almost number, number one, but number two. <laughs> yep. Now, number three, All My Best Friends Are Metalheads. Okay. And this song is memorable for me because I crowd surfed this to the song <laughs> for the first time ever crowd surfing. <laughs> and this was at the Lust and Jake show in 2022 at First Avenue with Bowling for Soup. And this was the encore song. I knew it was my last chance to crowd surf, so I yep. went for it. Which is amazing. Um, <laughs> so and I cool. Also, <laughs> Right. And I also remember playing Tony Hawk pro skater as a kid and the song was in that game. So, um, yeah, it's just a catchy song and it, it's one of my favorites too. This is a fair request and I promise I will not judge any person only as a teenager. If you will constantly remind yourself that some of my generation judges people by their race, their belief or the color of their skin, and that this is no more right than saying all teenagers are drunken dope addicts or glue sniffers.
it's still in the the remaster of um, Tony Hawk. By the way, they they re released okay. it on, on on console and PC, and I played through it. It's song still there, along with Superman by Goldfinger. I don't think they oh, were yeah. the same game. I can't remember if it was one or two or three or whatever, but um, yeah, that this song is actually not on my list. Believe it or oh, not, okay. Um, I know it's the favorite for a lot of people. It, they play it at every show. They've probably played it at every show since the album came out. But yeah. I think I've probably just heard it too many times. I, I enjoy mm-hmm. it. I think it's, I like the guitar riff at the beginning, but it doesn't make my top five from the album. Yeah, I can see that. And that's why it's not in my top two, I think, just because it's sure. played so frequently. And yeah. All of your best friends are not metalheads. <laughs> right. <laughs> they are not. All right. Number four for you. What'd you pick? Number four, I picked Nervous in the Alley. Ooh, yeah, great one. And this song, where the horns are so prominent, I think just the catchiness of how it starts out with the horns um, and the drums, too. Yeah, it's kind of a shuffle beat. Like uh, I think that's be a shuffle that it is. Kind of unique for less than Jake mm-hmm. for sure. Yep. So I think just right from the start, um, with the drum, the horns. Uh, again, it's very melodic. It's catchy. I don't really know the meaning of this song though. I can't say that I have really dissected or interpreted it too deeply. But I'm it's pretty just sure a fun it's about song. a fight. Uh, oh, okay. And that did or didn't happen. Um, now I need to look it up as we're talking. And then, you know, this is really exciting. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. On a Tuesday in the rain, I never thought there'd come a day. I never thought there'd come a day. Yeah. If I put myself to the test, would I ever raise a fist? Would mm-hmm. I just shut mm-hmm. my mouth or just block it out? Uh, I'd swore a million times never to be left again with that feeling of hopelessness, left standing, just nervous in the alley. So some sort of confrontation. Okay. I think. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I've never really thought about it. It's just a fun song to listen to. It really is. It, it, it sure is. Uh, it's, it's got, it's one of the songs that has some really cool Hammond B3 organ in parts in the background. Um, what you'd call like a bed of B3, like just like kind of playing. And uh, you really have to listen for it, but it's there. I'll put a clip in. Okay. okay. Um, which I think is a cool element to the song. And something that I had mentioned to Chris today was uh, it actually on on repeated listens, I realized, oh, this song actually sounds kind of like Dope Man from mm. uh, from Losing Streak, but so okay. much more fully realized with different parts. And I think, you know, there's a bridge and different things and some, um, I think, regular time to double time a little bit, if I remember right. Uh, so just it's a lot more variable and changed uh, throughout the the whole song than Dope Man is. Okay, I can see that. Yeah. So that was number four. Okay. So, or did you have any other thoughts on Nervous in the Alley? 
No, I think that does it. Number five, last one out of Liberty City. Oh, such a good song. <laughs> did you rank this one higher? Um, so I did. You? I get. I put it on my five. Yes, okay. uh, last one out of Liberty City is an amazing song. Why? Why'd you put it on your list? Oh, I think the beginning it just yeah. draws you in. Burn to the ground and then immediately just jumps into the guitar riff. Yep. Do, 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 or the bass, I should say. Do, 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 do. Um, yeah, just catchy. The I know, I know, I know. This is another one that they probably have played at every show since. Every, yes. Since the uh, Hell Rock View was, was, came out. But I, I love it. It's a Circle Pit song. They usually will That's get what people I, yep, going. Exactly. That's what I was thinking. It's like gets the people crazy. ideal mosh. Yep. It's a yeah, song where I kind of fear for my life a little bit <laughs> when I'm in the crowd. I'm always like having to brace myself. Like here it comes, but yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's one, I mean, you hear right away a thing that I had also mentioned to Chris and get sick of saying that, but just that I really think on this album, how cool it is that the quote, clean guitar tones of like the verses are actually pretty distorted and dirty. And this is a song mm-hmm. that you hear that on really clearly during the verses. Whereas in a lot of other albums, including other Less Than Jake albums, the clean, the verse uh, guitar tones are very jangly and and so clean. And there's such a difference between verse and chorus. And I. Think that Mm. uh, Mm -hmm. it being less that way on this album makes it feel more um, energized throughout the whole thing, more punky, as you said earlier. Um, yep. Yeah, this is this is just an amazing, amazing song. Um, it's really short, if I remember correctly, right? It's uh, two yes. minutes and one second. <laughs> and it's the first first song. Yep. It is the first song. Yep. Um, yeah. It's got a little sample at the beginning of it, which, you know, they've done over the years off and on in different songs, which I, I like when bands do that. Um, it has just a little bit of color to the to the album, which I think is cool. Uh, it is it's an amazing live song, which probably affects my um you know, feelings about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was going to look up the lyrics quick, um, but it's, yeah, just really, really cool song. And it's definitely on my list. Um, yeah. Liberty city. I wonder if that's uh, somewhere in New Jersey, because a lot of, again, Vinny's songs were about leaving New Jersey and, and kind of getting out basically. Um, yeah. Great song. So those are your five. Um, yeah. Are there songs you would put on, you know, if pressed for your least favorite song is in the album and why? Yes, I would put motto on that list just because it feels a little chaotic to me yeah, and a little repetitive, um, lacking the depth of the other songs. And and again, I don't dislike it, but if I had to choose that, that's probably my least favorite song on the album. Mine as well. I I think for me, I don't really love the, um, the guitar riff, which is Yeah, and even Roger's vocal on it, I think, is not my favorite. Uh, I think Mm. he sings lead on it. Roger's a great singer, but just doesn't really do it for me as much. But I do like that it ends in the feedback that fades into History of Boring Town. So I still don't skip it when I listen to the album. I don't skip anything on this. Um, Same here. But yeah, that that was my pick as well. Okay. 
So the two songs that were not on your list that were on mine, Five State Drive. Oh, that's a great song. I really love this song. And this is another one that I think is sort of underappreciated. 2.1 million plays on Spotify, um, which is the lowest of the first five songs on the album. So one, I guess, that people uh, would would, um, maybe skip a little bit. I I think that this is another really good example of... (sighs) complexity i guess in arrangement i would say mm-hmm. um you know it starts out pretty straightforward with it but a cool like walking uh baseline do 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 and then kicks in with the horns kind of a simple simple horn line yep But what's cool, I think, then is where there is a bridge. There's that going nowhere, going nowhere fast, and then which is like an instrumental bridge. And then a one run through of the chorus that is this really staccato um, by now that got found. They And there's just cymbal crashes with it, which is not something that they'd ever done, I don't think, in other songs. Like it's just, mm. and then they do it again with the full band kicking in behind them. By now, they got found. This change just don't look that way to me. Rejects look that way to me. Those are those things I'm guessing that Howard Benson really brought in to it to have them really like make these songs give you sort of goosebump moments. Mm -hmm. And I think that this album is so full of goosebump moments, I would say, that they're little, they're small, but they really, I think, show the elevation that they had in their songwriting. Yeah, now I'm regretting not putting that in my top five. That is a great song, right? Yeah. (laughs) And I don't know if they play that song live very often. I don't think they did. I, I mean, I wonder if Setlist FM would tell me. Yeah, that. I don't think that that's a frequently played song. Yeah, I mean, except of course on this tour. Uh, right, right. That might have been the only time I had heard it live. Yeah, let me look here to see. Okay, so I love Setlist FM. By the way, um, they played it twice in 2007. Oh. <laughs> they played it six times in 2011. Uh, 24 times in 2016. They must have done some rock view shows then. And then uh, 29 times in 2023. Um, okay. So yeah, it definitely not uh, nearly as many as like 
Um, all my best friends are metalheads. 954 mm-hmm. times played <laughs> since 2007. So every um, show, probably. Probably. And then, can I see it? We're in total plays here. Um, 92 times by Less Than Jake for Five State Drive. So, okay. yeah, that's, I love these stats. This is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then last on Liberty City, 645. So, okay. um, a huge difference for sure. What about uh, Help Save the Youth? Um, Help Save the Youth of America from Exploding. Uh, 284 times. Okay. And now I will say like this, this only starting in 2007 is not a very representative sample oh, because that, right. you know, excludes a lot of those shows that we would have seen before then, but you know, it's still interesting regardless. Um, my last song on my list is Scott Farkas takes it on the chin, mm, which Chris confirmed is a reference to a Christmas story. The movie oh, it is. I, okay. I had to ask that. Okay. Um, and it sounds like they changed the name from Scott because they were yes. worried about legal something or other. And <laughs> it probably would have been fine. This one. And, and he mentioned this, it was an older song that had been released on a seven inch. And I, I think it's on, um, uh, what is the goodbye blue and white? If I remember correctly, or one of their like B sides rarities collections in an earlier form. So I think it had been floating around for a little while. Um, love the horn line on this one. I think it's really That's... catchy. It's one of their best, most energetic horn lines. Um, I feel like with the band I was in, Fresh Cowies, I think we kind of copied it, if I remember right, on a song <laughs> or like the feel of the song. But then what's cool is another one of those production slash like songwriting touches that goes through it and it stops. And then there's just guitar chords with then some horn hits mm-hmm. and then a launch into the verse, which is really cool. Yeah, it just builds up with some really cool energy. And it's just one of those like kind of fast ska punk songs that I really love. Yeah, and it, it's really unique, too, and complex, like you've been talking about, like the lyric, um, when they go and when they drag you, kicking and screaming, and kind of gets a little bit staccato. Yep. Uh, that it's time to leave, and then jumps back into the horns. Yep, yep, for sure. Yeah, so that, that, that I, I, I don't know, it's so hard for me to pick because, you know... <sighs> God, I, I wish I would have been able to talk about all these songs with Chris, right? Like mm-hmm. Al's War, we didn't mention. Yes. Another hornless song. It's the last song in the album. Um, is a great song. It's a really good song with a really touching lyric. Mm-hmm. Um, another leaving home kind of situation. Sure. Uh, very personal, it sounds like. Um, very emotional with uh, really great uh, harmonies um, and and vocal lines in it as well. Never going back, right? I think that's the one. Mm-hmm. I'm a, but yeah. yeah. Um, that's another one I could have talked about. I did mention Danny says, because I think he had talked about that in the podcast with Howard Benson. Um, he, I remember Chris crapping on that song back in the day, like saying, this song sucks. I hate it or whatever. But um, I think that's a great one too. And, and I, I think, think he's grown yeah. to like it. And the crowd likes that it. it's got a great horn line. Mm-hmm. I mean, are there any other songs that we didn't talk about yet that you would want to mention uh, for any reason? Uh, a Big Crash. Oh, I that's like another that great song. Yeah, um, that's got a great chorus. Think- Kind of has a very poppy feel yeah. for the chorus. Um, and I don't think they play that one very often either. No, I only, of course, I closed a uh, set list, but yeah, let me, let me check for that one. Um, I think, yeah, there were a lot of songs in this album. Oh, okay. A hundred plays. Okay. Uh, a lot of songs in this album that just did not 
get played a lot because they have mm-hmm. a lot of songs. Like there's only so many right. you can do, as I said. So, and you know, people are definitely going to want to hear all my best friends are metalheads when they go to listen Jake show, <laughs> right. Johnny quest, thanks for selling 891 times. Yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's the, I agree. That's another great one. Um, you know, Richard Allen, George knows just cheese is not my favorite either, but it's, I think it's cool that there's the sample at the end. I think that was recorded on the ska against racism tour. If I remember right where they did Cinco yes. de mustache. It's just kind of a yes. goofy thing that then leads right into Scott Farkas, which is cool. Uh, yeah, just God, what a great album. And I, I do still listen yeah. to it all the time. I think the summer's mm-hmm. tour just got me back into it a little bit more. And with the 25th anniversary, I just, I, I just had to talk about it. Yeah, no, it's, it's forever going to be one of my favorite albums easily. I don't think I knew that you rollerbladed to it. I, I mean, I, I would have guessed that I turned you on to it. That's the thing about Big Brothers is, you know, sometimes exactly. you, were <laughs> get you, in, stuff. you were influential with your music choices, but I'm grateful for it because it helped me discover bands that I might not have discovered on my own since um, back before Spotify, Apple Music. It was, you know, you have to go to Cheapo and listen oh, to sure. the samples of music. And that was how you discovered bands or seeing openers and, you know, the radio or or warp tour, right? Warp like, tour. Yep. I mean, I remember vividly uh, going to the warp tour. Would have been probably two thousand, maybe two thousand one, um, at their booth because bands, bigger bands, had booths at warp tour. They had burned CDs with samples <laughs> of songs from Borders and uh, Boundaries on it. So I think that's where I heard Gainesville Rock City for the first time, if I remember right. It was just like okay. literally putting on headphones, which were probably dirty and disgusting, <laughs> if you think about right. it, um, from Warp Tour, Dirt and stuff, and just listen to that because the album wasn't out yet. They had recorded that for Capital, and then it didn't work out. They basically got dropped and then took that to Fat Records to release, uh, I think, in October of that year. Um, but yeah, like you said, it's, it was such a different era of music discovery and I don't know, in a lot of ways things are better now, but it's also just, there's that, I think music feels more disposable. Whereas like back Mm -hmm. then, once I found an album like this, I would just listen to the hell out of it over and over and over and over again. Cause it was what we had. Exactly. You get this rush and especially from such a solid album too. Yeah, for sure. Uh, do you remember anything like maybe last topic, uh, specifically about that first less than Jake show that you saw? Like how you felt seeing them live after being so into them on album? Yeah, I know that would have been one of my first shows I had gone to. And I think it might have been the one at the Quest, if I'm remembering correctly. And that was a really memorable show in general because I remember they recorded it. Yes, and I have it on on my iTunes, I think, or music, whatever it's called now. Yes, so I remember downloading the recording to my iPod and listening to it over and over and just being able to relive that. But I had never been to a concert like that before. Um, general admission at that time, I was oh, probably yeah. like 14, 14 years old and uh, seeing the diversity at a less than Jake show, like the way people looked and dressed was so different from what I was used to. Oh, I sure. just remember it just was so eye opening just seeing all these different kinds of people, different ages, and just like the dude all with coming the together. That we still yes, see at less than Jake shows. Every show. Yeah. Yep. Coming together because we love this band, and just having that sense of community. You know, the Scott community is so close that. Yeah, I think that show is just memorable and. Um, so one that of my was your first shows. one. That's really cool. I think I, I, so. Yeah, I think so. And he told that story about their road manager getting busted for DWI or something. Um, <laughs> That's right. And they were trying to raise some money for him or something. I don't remember what it was. It's definitely on the recording. I'm looking at it right now, live in Minneapolis. I have it saved. Yes. Um, yeah. What year memory. was that? I don't have it 
I guess I could see when I grabbed it, but that that doesn't necessarily mean. Um, I think it would have been like 2004 or five, maybe. Yeah, it looks like I grabbed it in 2009, but yeah, it could have been, they could have just uploaded it. Uh, yeah, I don't remember. You know, one other thing we didn't really talk about, um, you and I, I do feel like, and I, I did talk about it a little bit with Chris, was that this was one of the best incarnations in terms of the horn sound, but just personally, because they had that baritone sax. And if you listen, you mm-hmm. can really hear it on like Nervous in the Alley. It's like a kind of a underlying layer um, that they don't have anymore because JR plays a, uh, I think a standard alto, if I remember correctly, definitely uh, not okay. a baritone. Um, okay. And that was a unique thing that not a lot of ska bands had back then. And I think on this album on Rockview with the, like the super synthy sounding horns because they were auto-tuned, but with that like really low uh, baritone sax in there, it's just, it, again, unlike anything else I'd ever heard. Um, whereas, you know, listening to Real Big Fish, like I said earlier, that was like me and my friends, you know, band nerds playing ska songs. Mm-hmm. Whereas Less Than yep. Jake just had that different feel to it, which I thought was cool. Yes. So, yeah. Well, yeah. thank you so much for chatting about the album. I'm excited to put this together. Um, yeah, I, I I had forgotten and until today. I was like, oh, yeah, I should talk to you about this because you also love this <laughs> album. Um, so really appreciate the time. I had fun talking about it. I think I'm going to go listen to it. and <laughs> Good call. I probably will tonight, every too. song, and yeah. <laughs> if my newborn baby is sleeping. <laughs> right. <laughs> we'll also about a Liberty City, burn it to the ground.